Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. How's it going, everyone? I hope everyone had a good week. So I'm not going to waste a lot of time and build up here. Let's just go ahead and dive in. Our first segment every episode is Budget Spotlight, where we're highlighting an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander slanted card that I feel like l- have more potential than either their price tag or their play rates would dictate. This segment is sponsored by PureMTGO.com which is one of the largest depositories of Magic content on the web. If there is a format you want content for, head over there and check it out. It's going to do you a favor and do us a favor. And while you're at it, if you're a Magic Online player, I mean, you can rent your cards from Mana Trader, or you can just buy your cards from MTGO Traders, who is the sponsor of Pure MTGO. So go over there, check them out. Like, I was was doing business with them well before they had any inner any amount of interest in sponsoring anything that I've ever done. So it's a testament to their service, their quality of inventory, and just they're fantastic. So check them out. Do yourself that favor. The price is reflected in this segment. The paper price comes from CoolStuffInc.com, which is where I do most of my paperwork. Uh, And then the Magic Online prices are from MTGO Traders. So without any further ado, let's dive in. Our uncommon this week is Bloodline Harvester, which is a red and a black for a 3-2. When this creature enters the battlefield, create a blood token. And then you can tap this creature, sacrifice this creature, and target creature and opponent controls gets minus X, minus X until end of turn, where X is the number of blood tokens you control. And price tag on this right now sits at 25 cents in paper or a penny on Magic Online, which is honestly a pretty common refrain for the uncommon in this segment, especially as we tend to focus more on standard cards than otherwise because they tend to have a relatively low price tag. Uh, Bloodline Harvester, it's a solid rate creature. 
leaves behind a resource, and it has synergy with a mechanic. Stop me if you've heard this before. Following in the vein of creatures like Rogue Refiner, like, uh, oh, what is that card's name? Thraben Inspector, uh, not, not quite Bone Crusher Giant, not quite Lovestruck Beast, I guess, but the idea that the idea that you've got a creature that can synergize, can set up your mechanics. Not for nothing, it also, like, the token it makes is an artifact. It doesn't have to care specifically about blood token generation. You can use that to fuel something like Deadly Dispute. You can use that to fuel uh, Metalcraft shenanigans and older formats. You can use that to just tr give you the option to turn on something like... Uh, Toolcraft Exemplar or Inventor's Apprentice, but it also like synergizes with the blood token stuff. It synergizes with the fact that it's a vampire. So like there's a lot going on that this card fits into really nicely. And then not for nothing, it acts as a threat or a removal spell in the sense that you can just stick it on the board and it either, it's going to trade card for card somewhere, right? Like, it's either going to trade card for card with an opponent's removal spell, an opponent's protection effect, or trade card for card with an opposing creature if you've got enough blood, or if they're playing small enough creatures. Like, it's just, it's going to trade somewhere. And for two mana, you can't really ask for more. It's pretty versatile for a two drop. Like, it applies pressure well as a threat, but it also can scale if you're playing enough blood generation to punch up and take out stuff that's bigger than it. So, all in all, not a bad bargain, both for two mana and as little as it costs financially. Moving on to our rare, we have Lorehold Command. Now, Lorehold Command is kind of the forgotten red-headed, red-and-white-headed stepchild, if you will, of the Strixhaven Command cycle. Like, Prismari Command is far and away the best one, Witherbloom Command's got some applications, and then there's all the rest of them. But out of the bunch, I think this one has the most applications, at the very least in standard, because of its relative versatility. Uh, Lorehold Command is three, a red and a white, instant, choose two. We like choosing things on this show. You could say I have, uh, it's it's right in my alley. It's a, it's a mode that I like. Uh Call me modular as a player. Your modes to choose from are create a 3-2 red spirit token, a 3-2 red and white spirit token, apologies. Uh, sacrifice a permanent and draw two cards. Creatures you control get plus one, plus oh, and gain indestructible and haste until end of turn, or lightning helix, three damage to any target, gain three life. So three out of the four modes are absolutely fantastic. Uh, the one sort of red herring there being the make a 3-2. That's like the worst mode on the card, and even then it's still some amount of value. Uh, but between treasures and blood and, you know, these uh, investigate and all these other things that just throw random permanents extra on the battlefield, and if you use them, you use them, and if you don't, you don't. The ability to sacrifice those to draw cards in addition to doing some other sort of forward momentum generation, either in terms of halting your opponent's momentum or pushing your own forward, i.e., 
it's typically going to be used to push for game as an aggressive card. Like you're going to use it to clear a blocker and give everybody plus one, plus oh in haste. You know, either like an upkeep effect makes a token and then you give everybody haste. Or, you know, you play a Planeswalker ability to make tokens or to clear a blocker and then you give everybody plus one, plus O oh, and just ram them in there. Or you will, you know, plus one, plus O, oh, draw two cards, hope to find another threat, whatever, right? Or you can use it as a pseudo instant speed three for one because you can trade the lightning helix mode as card for card and then you get to draw two. So, like, if you're trading off a blood token that's less than a card's worth of value, as noted by the number of cards that make blood, that the value of the token is not very high. Like, the, the amount of mana you're spending to get a blood token is not very high. So, in that regard, like, the card is really surprisingly valuable from the standpoint of what it does in your decks. Like, it's really kind of competing with Showdown of the Scalds at the top of your curve in red-white decks. And it was actually thanks to, I cannot remember for the life of me who it was on Twitter that said it, but it was someone on Twitter that actually kind of clued me into it and got me thinking about it, investigating it, if you will. And it just really, like, it, it kind of spoke to me. It's one of those cards I really want to play around with now. And the price tag is low enough that playing around with it is justifiable because the paper price tag is 75 cents and the magic online price is three cents. Come on, we can do that. We, we can suffer through that in order to do some cool stuff, right? Moving on to our mythic, it is Mavinda students advocate, Mavinda, Mavinda. I don't, I don't know how y'all pronounce it. I'm going to go with Mavinda. Uh, Mavenda is two and a white, legendary creature, bird wizard, two, three, flying. And then for zero mana, you can cast target instant or sorcery spell from your graveyard. That spell costs eight generic additional mana to cast if it doesn't target a creature you control. And if I'm not mistaken, you can only activate this effect once per turn. I genuinely can't remember, and I don't want to waste everybody's time trying to look it up. But just on the face of that, like, it's the closest thing we have to Dreadhorde Arcanist in standard. We're in a standard format where we have Guiding Voice, Charge Through in green, Show of Confidence in white, and more. We can find stuff to cast. All right? Like, Homestead Courage already has flashback. You don't have to use Mavenda's effect to get that. But being able to go like, you know, you've got Clever Lumamancer on the battlefield and you go Guiding Voice, Mavenda Effect, Guiding Voice again, Homestead Courage, Show of Confidence on five mana. And you just pile up the triggers and blast your opponent into oblivion. We can find stuff to cast. Of note, this card is also really, really, really good alongside Storm Chaser Drake, where we want to target Storm Chaser Drake with stuff anyway. Uh, Storm Chaser Drake being, you know, draw a card whenever you target this creature with a spell. 
And that takes a little bit of getting used to in terms of like how to use the card reliably because the first thought is I'm going to play it alongside stuff like Guiding Voice and Show of Confidence and Homestead Courage and, uh, you know, we're just going to keep it alive with the occasional hexproof effect. But then you get into matchups where your opponent goes for a removal spell and you fading hope your own Storm Chaser Drake in order to draw a card and a functionally counter their removal spell. Or you divide by zero your own creature in response to take like a three for one out of it. It's just really powerful. And the fact that Mavenda allows you to do that means it's not just like a one trick pony sort of effect where all you get to do is play classic heroic cards. Like in conjunction with Storm Chaser Drake, there's a lot of sort of multiplicity that doesn't really show up on paper to begin with. Uh, but, I mean, it's a, it's a card I've had my eye on for quite some time, admittedly. But it's just not one I ever really considered playing, in part because the, the blue-white Magecraft deck last year largely wanted to play Luris. And in wanting to play Luris, you didn't want to play three drops in your deck. But, I mean, Maven oh, sorry, not Bird Wizard, Bird Advisor. I was mistaken about creature types. Yes, I used the time I was talking to y'all to look it up. I tried to keep things, I tried to multitask here. But in re regardless, Mavenda is fantastic alongside uh, Magecraft effects, effects like Storm Chaser Drake, effects like Favorite Hoplite, Battlewise Hoplite, 10th District Legionnaire, you know, anything that wants you to target your stuff with spells. You know, Seasons, uh, Season of Growth, I think it is. Whatever. Like, Mavendo wants you to do that and, and really pays you off for it. So, for the price tag, $1 in paper, $1.82 on uh, Magic Online. We can do a whole lot worse. And last but not least is Edgar Charmed Groom. Now, Edgar has a, has a distinct piece here. Uh, because Edgar is not only... It's, it's two a black and a white, four four... Uh, legendary creature, vampire, let me, let me make sure I'm getting this right here. Legendary creature, vampire noble. Other vampires you control get plus one, plus one. And then when Edgar Charmed Groom dies, return it to the battlefield transformed under its owner's control. Edgar Markov's coffin is the transform side. At the beginning of your upkeep, create a 1-1 one, one white and black vampire token with lifelink and put a bloodline counter on Edgar Markov's coffin. Then if there are three or more bloodline counters on it, remove those counters and transform it. So, price tag-wise, you're in black-white. Your commander doesn't care about dying, so you aren't reliably going to have to be paying commander tax over and over again unless they're using... Exile removal. Now, if they're just killing him, you don't care. And then 
The price tag is only $3. $3 in paper, 37 cents on Magic Online. And you get a Vampire Tribal Lord in the two most relevant colors for vampires. That also is incredibly difficult to keep off the battlefield. Uh, both in terms of not allowing your opponent to stress your mana. And in terms of just like... He gives himself bodies to pump, right? Like, they kill him, you sit there with the, the coffin for three turns, and then he comes back and you've got three tokens, plus whatever else you've done in the interim. So from that standpoint, it's less broken than his Mardu counterpart, but he's also less linear and therefore more fun. Uh, original Edgar Markov, of course, had eminence and... The eminence ability was just disgusting. But, really, like, there's no value to doing that fairly. You just want to play vampires and attack with vampires and make more vampires and kill your opponents as quickly as possible. And the deck is really linear, really straightforward, and there's not a whole lot you can play around with. And also, it's like 10 times the price, minimum. So from that, from the... Budgetary constraints on the commander side, this Edgar is infinitely cheaper than OG Edgar Markov. But not just that, it's also a great investment because it's a player in standard. It's a classic mid-range creature. It's a four-drop that's really hard to kill. We like four-drops that are hard to kill in standard. I don't know if y'all have noticed. So getting one for $3... Out of the set that just dropped, so we've got it for this year and next year. And it's $3 or 37 cents on Magic. Just go get the card. All right, just go get the card. So with that in mind, that's going to wrap up Budget Spotlight. Next up is Brew of the Week. Brew of the Week is a segment where I'm highlighting a deck that sort of, high, sort of spotlights... What I want to talk about for the episode, the style of play or the theory application or something to do with the format, whatever it is I'm talking about this week, and I feel like the deck is relatively cheap to get into, but offers a really high upside from a playability standpoint, either in terms of ability to play it cheaply on digital platforms where... For example, on Arena, it doesn't have a ton of rare and mythic wild cards, but the deck is really, really good, a la Is It Epiphany. Or it's a deck that in paper or on Magic Online would be really cheap to buy, but offers some amount of upside in terms of how powerful it is. And this week's deck is much more the, the latter than the former. This week we're talking about Fires of Invention in Pioneer. Specifically in Pioneer because it is banned in Historic, so we can't talk about it in Historic for all the people who want me to. I can't. I'm not allowed. Wizards said no. So, core concept of Fires is to leverage one of the strongest mana engines we've seen to dominate the board. Uh, Fires of Invention is a cracked-in-half magic card. I don't know if y'all have ever read that card, but the first time you read that card, you go, oh no, oh no, baby, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, four mana, 
You, can, you can't cast spells except during your turn. And you can only cast two spells per turn. So with all those restrictions, what it gives you better be really strong, right? Thankfully it is, because you can cast spells with mana value equal to or less than the number of lands you control for free. So what do you want to do to dominate the table once you resolve this thing? That's the only question you've got to answer. All you want to do with your fires deck is get to four and five mana and then just start burying your opponent in powerful spells. Because you aren't using mana for spells, you can also use it to activate abilities on the permanents you're putting into play. A really good example is a card like Search for Ascanta in the Planeswalker variants of fires. Or... Uh, Kenrith the Return King in the creature variants of Fires, or uh, Fae of Wishes on the battlefield, or, you know, a number of abilities that you can play. Castle Vantress, Castle Lockthwain, Castle whatever the heck you want to play. Fires is a powerful engine. There's, there's not really any getting around that. It's just a messed up powerful magic card. And because of that, there's a lot of different ways you can build this deck. And that's where we go into customization. The whole dang deck is customizable outside of the core game plan of Fires plus powerful cards. Like, I want to play Fires of Invention and a bunch of stuff I have no business being able to cast two of in the same turn. That, that's my plan. That's what I'm here for. That's what I want to do. Whether that means you're playing Planeswalkers, like you just want to pick a powerful engine. Super Friends with Fae of Wishes, do it. Narset, Parter of Veils, Legal and Pioneer. Both, or all three Teferis. We all forget about T4E. Teferi. F-A-I-R. <laughs> From, uh, I think it was M21. Four drop to Fairy Master of Time. We forget about that one. We forget about uh, the fact that in Pioneer, three drop to Fairy's legal. To Fairy Hero of Dominaria, you can play Tribal to Fairies alongside your Fires of Invention. Uh, you get Sarkin the Masterless, which will allow your Planeswalkers to go to the skies and attack your opponents to death. You get. Just a host of things. So from that standpoint, like, and then Fae of Wishes allows you to play off-color Planeswalkers and powerful off-color non-creature spells in your sideboard, like, I don't know, Ruinous Ultimatum, destroy all non-land permanents your opponents control. Uh, Inspired Ultimatum, five damage, five life, five cards. That's really strong. I don't know if y'all know that. That's really strong. You can play, I call I, I lovingly refer to this engine as the show ponies. With Cavaliers providing a quick clock and card selection. Uh, Cavalier of Gales is a brainstorm every time it enters the battlefield. Cavalier of the, the Green Cavalier is card selection off the top of the deck. Cavalier Flame, discard dead cards, draw new cards, and offers you something to do with your mana because you can use the ability to give everybody haste. Uh, 
Kenrith the Return King. Same thing. Something to do with your mana, and you can give everybody haste. So you can very quickly transition from trying to stay alive to get the Fire's Engine online to killing your opponent, which is what you want to do in a powerful mana-driven mid-range deck like this. You can play Luka, Yorian, and Agent of Treachery. The, the deck that got Fire's banned in Standard and, and uh, Historic. You know, Luka, Yorian, Agent of Treachery, a bunch of stuff that makes tokens. And then you just, like, Fire's comes down. The next turn you can go Luka, activate, hit Agent of Treachery, take your thing, spend three mana, move Yorian to my hand, cast Yorian, blink everything. That's really powerful. Still. And then, last but not least, this is just one for me. This is one that I think is really funny. Uh, can technically fit into any of these other engines. And in particular, it fits well in the Super Friends version that's already playing a bunch of selection for non-creature spells and into the uh, Luka version where you want some secondary win conditions or stall tactics. And that is Nine Lives plus Solemnity. Nine Lives says you can't take damage. If damage would be dealt to you, instead put that many counters on, or put a counter on Nine Lives. And then when Nine Lives has been accumulated nine counters, it exiles itself, and the Nine Lives itself has Hexproof. Well, the upside to that is you can play it alongside Solemnity, and then players can't put counters on permanents. So they try to damage you, it tries to put a counter on it, and it can't. So they just can't damage you. As long as those two cards are on the field together. And I think that's just the cutest thing ever, and it's not just because I love cats. Strengths and weaknesses, once your engine is online, you are hard to slow down. You just steamroll forward until your opponent dies. Like, as long as you you keep drawing gas and you've got two powerful things to play each turn, that's one of the benefits to being under fires, is you aren't under a lot of stress to, like, try to commit way too many resources to the board. You only get two things a turn. And having access to double your mana worth of spells and then getting all your mana to look for them is just obnoxious and it should not have been printed. But... Stopping your engine is not hard because of how you build to play under fires. You don't get to play a lot of interactive spells. You don't get to play a lot of cheap spells because, frankly, you don't want them. Like, there's not a ton of cheap spells you want in your fires deck. You know, there's, there's, it could be argued that the best variant of fires would want Karuka as a companion. Because, you, you know, in the, the Cavaliers version, you can play Karuga as companion and not really lose anything. Because you can, you know, ramp from three to five mana on turn three, or, you know, get your, your fourth land into play on turn three with a three mana ramp spell, and then on turn four go fires plus five drop, and start the forward momentum right then and there. And then Karuga is a companion that will allow you to just draw a bunch of cards once you get a bunch of permanents in play. 
So in that regard, like there's a lot of things you can do with this show. The downside being you aren't really interested in what your opponents are doing in so much as if they can go over the top of you, they go over the top of you. If they can get under you with something like a tempo play, you know, get a Delver on the field with counter magic or get a stupid flying idiot wearing a curious obsession with counter magic up or rip your hand to pieces and get a Dreadhorde Arcanist going, it's really hard for you to claw back into those games, even though you've got all these powerful cards in your deck, because casting one of them uses your whole turn. And if your opponent can efficiently interact with it and then keep applying pressure, it's really easy for them to just run you over gradually. So what's the outlook? It's an archetype with a really high power ceiling. Like you've just got a lot of things you get to do that other decks should other decks won't have access to. It hasn't really been explored in the context of Pioneer. It got played to death in Standard, but there's a lot of cards we get in Pioneer that we didn't have in Standard. So there may be engines further down the line that are more powerful than any of them we played in Standard. I don't know. These are just the you know the ones that came to me came to mind off the top of my head the uh, planeswalkers the cavaliers the Luca package and then like the nine life solemnity sort of I don't win but neither do you package and then Karuga plus you know expensive cards from a competitive standpoint in the last two pioneer challenges on MTGO it took top thirty two. And top 16. It's never been cheaper to build with the Super Friends variant only clocking in around $90 in paper. And just being really, really good. <laughs> so, you know, budget-wise it's good. Power level-wise it's good. And it's got a, enough of a competitive pedigree to justify the investment. Now, is this going to be one of those decks that you get into in Pioneer and it's good in Modern? Probably not. Definitely not good enough in Legacy. But it's really got some potential in Pioneer specifically. And a lot of the cards you're going to get for it are going to be cards you want for Commander down the line anyway. So there's still some investment buying you can do. So with that out of the way... That's all I got for Brew of the Week. Let's move on to our main topic. It is the last episode of the Player Draw series. We're talking about the outliers because we've talked about it from a proactive perspective. We've talked about it from a reactive perspective. We've talked about the fundamental difference between being on the play and on the draw, like what the games are about. What we haven't talked about are decks that play outside the realm of being consistently proactive or consistently reactive. And the big two I want to talk about here are mid-range decks and combo decks. Mid-range decks are already meant to switch how they play based on the opponent. Your primary resource as a mid-range deck is efficiency, or the idea that any of your threats is enough in isolation to quickly kill the opponent. I.e. you want the best rate creature or the creature, alternately, you can be 
difficult to interact with on a one-for-one -one basis in the sense that everything you play leaves something behind. Whether it be cards in your hand, extra permanents on the battlefield that you take advantage of later, whatever the case may be, you are constantly snowballing forward just slower than an aggro deck would. On the play, you're just looking to establish a threat safely and ride it to victory. Get a big thing down, beat them to death with it, clear out blockers if they play them, be able to play another threat, be able to, you know, plus one wherever possible. That's what you want to do, just kind of regardless of what you're playing against. If it's aggro, you want to be able to catch up on the board, resolve a powerful threat, and start beating down, a la Goldspan Dragon, coming down after... Uh, Dragonic Intervention, or Crush the Weak, or Cinderclasm. Uh, or you want, you know, Loth Spider Queen to come down after you have nickel and dimed your opponent to death with stuff like Skullport Merchant and Shambling Gast early in the game. On the draw against an opponent who is aggressive towards you, you're in for the grind. You want to force them to spend extra resources to keep their momentum going. The goal is to expend your opponent's resources, get both of you into top deck mode, and your cards are better than theirs. On, re on average, they're going to start drawing lands while you are drawing cards that you can cast, or you're both going to draw lands, and then once you get a card you can cast, your cards that you can cast tend to be either better than your opponent's or will find you more cards that you can cast. Again, a la... Flooping an old growth troll onto the table against mono white is probably pretty good. Or flipping a uh, Skullport Merchant onto the table when, you know, the board's relatively simple and you're both in top deck mode. Skullport Merchant can be enough card advantage, just one four body, so it soaks up a lot of damage that the mono white deck can dish out. Uh... And then it can draw cards. So it can potentially draw additional copies of itself, or it can draw something like a Shambling Ghast, with which you can block, sacrifice, draw a card, create a treasure that gives you something else to sacrifice to draw a card. You can keep finding more copies of Skullport Merchant and Shambling Ghast. You can grind your opponent down until they run out of gas and you don't. That's not to say you are the control deck, but you are the control role in that matchup. Just in general, you want to avoid putting yourself in a situation where your opponent can kill you. That's less to say you want to like not commit to the board for fear of your opponent doing something that kills you, and more to say you want to use your life total as a resource effectively. Don't let them take too much of it too early. Make aggressive trades in combat. Knowing that you've got powerful cards that will bail you out later. On the draw against a more reactive opponent, you want to use your early turns to force them to interact, and then you want to start taking more game actions than them. You want to take you want double spells. You want spells and abilities that are relevant. You know, you on turn five against a control deck, you get, you know. Attack with Chariot, your opponent has to interact. 
well, then I get to slam this Ren 7. Or then I get to slam this uh, Goldspan Dragon. Or then I get to slam this... Uh, Oh, Tolvalar or whatever, right? Like, you just want to force the opponent to interact with what you already have wherever possible and then commit the next threat to the board. You want to gradually wear down the removal that they have access to. Because, again, the theory of operation behind your deck is your cards are good enough to beat them by themselves. Either because your cards will kill them quickly if one of them goes unanswered, i.e. all of your creatures are functionally Baneslayers. Or all of your creatures are Moldrifters, and if your opponent has nothing but spot removal, they will eventually run out. And you will still have resources to work with. So, in sideboarding, you want access to a small package for each with the understanding that your games inevitably end in a top deck war. As a result, you probably want some mana sinks in your deck, whether it's a land that does stuff or creatures that give you the ability to spend mana to get scaling effects. Uh, you know, we've already talked about uh, Skullport Merchant and Standard or uh, Renin 7 or... Essica's Chariot, Goldspan Dragon, but even going back a little ways, the Scarab God was amazing, not just because it was a really efficient rate card that killed your opponent quickly and let you use the fact that your opponent played a bunch of removal early in the game against them. It was also the fact that it gave you something to do with your mana when you were both top decking that allowed you to push forward. Something similar goes for, let's say, Inferno of Star Mounts. It's difficult to interact with. The opponent can't counter it. It's 6-drop, six 6-6 six, six haste flying. It's really efficient. And if you don't draw another threat, you can just start pumping mana into it and kill your opponent faster. You attack for 6. If that's the first damage they've taken, they're at 14. You untap, attack for 10. They got to kill it now. And that leaves them wide open for a gold span swing. It forces your opponent to not interact with you. Against combo decks, you want to board into a configuration that allows you to disrupt and apply pressure without sacrificing power level where you can. I.e., you want discard spells instead of removal because frequently removal is not fast enough against them. Or you want, you know, if you're... Smaller creatures can apply some pressure. You maybe want to board down on some of your top end and play some counter magic if you've got access to blue in order to cut off the opponent's ability to combo you. Speaking of combo, combo decks don't really care what you're doing. It's kind of the, the MO. Your primary resources in it is the inability of the opponent to ever correctly interact with you. Which is to say, you are inevitable in every matchup. Because, you know, similar to what we talked about a little bit last week, they can hurt you, but you can kill them. They have to play the game knowing full well you can end it in the blink of an eye if they allow it. 
On the play, you want to test their patience if you're a traditional combo or work towards a critical mass of spells if you're a sort of traditional storm combo, like you know, a, a deck that wants a lot of cards to resolve in the turn that they combo off. Which is to say, if you're a traditional combo deck, you want to test your opponent's patience. You want to test how long they're willing to wait. You want to get them into a position where they think they're comfortable tapping out and then kill them. You know, Splinter Twin was the best at this because the opponent would frequently, eh, maybe I got a chance here, let's get this thing down and then you counter the thing, Deceiver Exarch untap Splinter Twin, kill you. Or, you know, the Sahili, the Sahili deck was really good at that, right? Like you could just Oath of Nyssa and Rogue Refiner and Ruler Virtuoso and like you get a little bit ahead on the board and the opponent's like, I don't really want to, I don't want to fall too far behind. Let me play this uh, board wipe to catch up. And then you just untap Guardian, blink a land, Sahili, kill you. Like, <laughs> they have to play knowing you can kill them. And if they are too patient and you've got ways to win the game outside of your traditional two-card combo, two or three-card combo, how do they how do they handle that? You know, how do they handle living with the fact that you can snap off a win out of nowhere, but also the fact that you can still generate some amount of momentum as you play? That's the tension when you're playing against a traditional combo deck. Against Storm, it's like, how long can I wait? You know, the Storm deck's like, am I under pressure? Because if I'm not under pressure, I can just sit here and play around and, like, get my hand ready, get everything the way I want it, and then, boom, do the thing and kill you. As long as I got enough lands in play, like, I don't have to kill you on turn four. I can, but I don't have to. If you're not, if you're not making it where I need to kill you on turn four, I don't have to. I can wait this out. Now, if you want to leave your mana up, that's your business. We'll wait this out. Wait till you decide to do something, or wait until I've got so much available at my disposal that it doesn't matter what you do. On the draw against a proactive deck, you got to race. You want to create a gap in their momentum and use it to kill them. They are playing on they are playing the percentages and banking on you to not function. Either because they're playing like one or two pieces of like static disruption, a la Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, or uh Thalia Heretic Cathar during the Sahili Cat format. Even something as innocuous as a walking ballista could have broke could break up the Sahili combo and allowed a creature like a Gideon Ally of, or a, a card like a Heart of Karen or Gideon Ally of Zendikar to start applying pressure to you and make the game into a race. Like, they are going to be trying to kill you before you get to kill them. They're banking on the idea that you will just not get there. They gotta play the percentages. It's the reason Jerry Thompson's zombie deck won at uh, Pro Tour Hour of Devastation. It was just too good at what it did. Like, you just, it just did the same thing every game. 
put a clock on the opponent, if it resolved Liliana's Mastery, after casting a 1-drop, a 2-drop, and a 1-drop, like 3-drop, drop, or 2-drop, two 2-drop, two you were going to die. So if you were playing the Marvel deck, you had to hit Ulamog, and sometimes hitting Ulamog was not enough. On the draw against a more reactive opponent, you're not under much pressure. Use that to your advantage and sculpt your hand, keeping the likely means of disruption your opponent's going to be employing in mind. If they're playing a bunch of counter magic, don't walk into it. Don't try to combo off too early. You've got time. If they're playing a bunch of discard, see if there's effects you can utilize to protect your cards from disruption like that. Whether it's effects like Foretell, whether it's a creature like a Leer that will allow you to play out your stuff out of your graveyard. Or just a powerful draw or filter effect that after your opponent looks at your hand, you can use it to find another copy of the card you just lost. In sideboarding, it's important to have access to some sort of a secondary engine or win condition. I'm not talking about going full-on transformation. I'm not talking about boarding in, you know, 13 cards in every matchup and trying to turn into a different deck. But having access to a thing that you can go into, whether it's, you know, the Marvel deck going into Ulvenwald Hydra, where in, if you just played the percentages of... If I get a big dumb thing on the table, it's hard for them to win, so we're just going to play more big dumb things after sideboarding. Or, you know, storm boarding in... I don't know. I'm not... I, honestly, I'm not sure how storm sideboards. I'm being perfectly candid here. I'm not sure how you sideboard with storm. Uh, but like the Sahili deck being able to board into more energy cards, or just you've already got the energy cards in the main deck, so if your opponent overcommits to trying to disrupt the combo, you've still got one half of the combo or, you know, whatever thing you resolve first. If you resolve the Sahili and they would uh, Lost Legacy, the Felidar Guardian, well, the Sahili could still sit there and poop out a token that was a copy of Whirler Virtuoso, which would give you three energy and then would allow you to attack for two, make a Thopter token, or fuel harness lightning, or fuel whatever. You know, or Feldar Guardian, if they lost Legacy, the Sahili would allow you to blink all of those permanents, including Oath of Nyssa, or Oath of Chandra, or Oath of Jace, or whatever, and just gradually push forward an advantage. In Splinter Twin, you had uh, builds of Splinter Twin that regularly sideboarded into Inferno Titan, because if the opponent had an out to Deceiver Exarch, whether it was Slaughter Games or, uh, you know, oh, what is that card's name? I can't remember now. Doesn't matter. Brain Hemorrhage. I can't. I can't remember the name of the card. Thought Hemorrhage. That was the name of the card. Thought Hemorrhage. You know, whether it was Thought Hemorrhage or something similar, uh, Surgical Extraction. It didn't really matter if they, you know. Inquisition, you surgical extracted the Deceiver Exarchs. Inferno Titan plus Splinter Twin could kill you really, really, really quick. You know, Inferno Titan plus Splinter Twin was a ton of damage per turn. You just make a 6-6, six, six, deal them three, attack, deal them three. Like, that's, that's 12 damage a turn. 
That kills them in two swings. I don't have to do anything cute. You know, I don't have to kill you all at once. I can, but I don't have to. And you got to respect that. You know, there's a lot of different ways that these decks function, and that's like one of the things I love. Now, when you're playing against mid-range, whether you're on the play or the draw, they are going to sacrifice their momentum every time they worry about you. If they are taking a turn off to leave up disruption, whether it's a counterspell or taking a turn off in their curve to make you discard cards, whether it's turn one or playing a three drop on turn four plus a thought seize instead of playing a four drop that slows them down. Use that to your advantage. Keep that in mind. They give up momentum every time they worry about what you're doing. That's same is true for any deck you're playing against, but especially in mid-range where the curve is kind of finicky and it really depends on how you're playing the game, how you're navigating. Like You don't have the best amount of pressure, but you, each of your threats can generate a lot of it. You don't have access to a lot of disruption, but a little bit can go a long way if you're applying pressure. But every time you pick one or the other, you're sacrificing something. And as the combo deck, you are uniquely equipped to capitalize on it. Whether it means the opponent decides not to sacrifice momentum at all and you just kill them because you fa you're faster than them, or they sacrifice so much momentum that they fall behind and you get to claw in and win it the fair way. It doesn't really matter. So just keep it in mind every time you're playing combo mid-range. Like, they look at things a little bit different. Just full full stop. They look at things through a different lens than the rest of the field. That's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you are you got questions, comments, concerns, send them on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. Leave them in the comment section down below and don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. Uh, if you're checking this out on YouTube, don't forget to Follow us in the Facebook group, Homeward Pathfinders. If you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, you can head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg, become a patron, take advantage of the rewards. We've got the Patron Pathfinders Discord. We've got your deck being the focal point of Brew of the Week, and we've got you getting your very own episode. You know, if it's a uh, there's a content piece you want done and you haven't heard it, let's talk about it. I want to do it. So, with that in mind, and if you want to get to know the guy behind the microphone, you can find me on TikTok at Homeward Path Gaming. And if you ever run into Homeward Path MTG while playing Steam games, yes, that's me. So, I will probably be uh, the giant pile of trash over in the corner playing Halo. So, with... with as I feel like I've wasted enough of your time today, uh, thank you all again for listening, and I will leave you with my traditional farewell. Everybody's going through stuff right now. We don't know what anybody's dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And with that in mind, always lead with kindness. Like, people are dealing with enough crap right now. So, always try to be the reason someone's day gets brightened. Always try to be nice, never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, play tight, be kind. We'll catch you next week.